What is going on, everyone? Welcome to A Theology of Hustle. I'm your host, Curry Blanford, and today I am talking to Cam. Uh, I'm really excited about uh, you hearing from Cam today. He's an awesome dude. I found him on Instagram. And uh, so what Cam do is doing is he has this whole setup going on, but is is doing uh, a lot around adoption-informed counseling. So he has an online counseling practice that he's doing. He's doing workshops online and all sorts of these like really important, necessary things for the adoption community. I can't uh, overestimate how important that hearing from adult adoptees is to the adoption community and people like Cam, who is an adult adoptee from Korea himself, is doing this uh, incredible work and I think very necessary work. So I, I can't wait for you to hear his story. He's got this uh, amazing story of sort of uh, a, a life lived in steps of like of, of coming to understand God more, coming to understand his own uh, ethnicity more, his place in the world and and all of these different things. There's a, a whole transition to meeting his birth mother, you know, after uh, many, many de- or after many decades. And so uh it's just a really cool story of, of how God has led him to this place and, and put him in into this place where he has uh, a story that can really help a lot of people, a lot of uh, adoptees sort of navigating some of these difficulties themselves. And so I can't wait for you to hear from Cam. He's an awesome guy, and I love what he's got going on. So uh, before I, I start this interview, though, I just want to remind you uh, to make sure you follow me at Theology of Hustle on Instagram and Facebook and at Curry Blanford on Twitter. Uh, you could also leave me a rating and review on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen to podcasts just to help get the word out about the podcast i would greatly appreciate that so yeah i really hope you enjoy hearing from cam cool well cam thanks so much for jumping on the podcast with me and chatting a little bit this is fun yeah i'm glad i can be here (laughs) that's awesome man all right well let's uh just start off and just have you kind of introduce yourself to everybody out there yeah um and yeah thank you again curry for just allowing me to hop on and be a part of what you're doing my name is cam and i was born in korea placed for adoption when i was three and a half years old and raised in wisconsin so i spent a large part of my life just trying to figure out who am i where am i what am i doing here and where do i go next and i think you know by god's grace there were a lot of mentors that i hooked up with along the way, um, uh, the local church, and was able to kind of engage in that process of figuring out my, my place in this world and just even my part um, in kind of redemptive history, so to speak. Yeah. And so that led me on a path toward counseling psychology. I got my master's at UW-Madison and have been you know just doing what I can to kind of align with folks and walk alongside others in, in their journey in their adoption process and um, just the other pieces of complexity that that we all face on a daily basis as people and soldiers uh, in this world. Yeah. Uh, I've, so I've been thinking about this a lot, trying to figure out how I want to structure this interview, I think. I, I think I want to switch it up with you because normally I would sort of walk through a person's history and then talk about their vocation. I'd love to switch it up though. And just like, let's delve into like what you're doing now, the therapy redeemed and all of that stuff. Maybe talk about your work and then delve back into your history. Once we sort of have all that sorted, does that sound all right with you? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So why don't you tell us about sort of what you got going on uh, now with your, with your practice and and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, so I offer online video, virtual telehealth, one-on-one um, -on -one or family counseling. And what that looks like is weekly services. It can also look like a am running a 12-week online parent workshop where we meet together online and talk about current relevant issues related to it, the adoption experience. Um, and I create content for folks to, you know, read and think about adoption related ideas. And I think right now, um, just where we are at in history, we're at a place where mental health is shifting and entering into the digital space. And it feels so important to make sure that we're doing that well in a way that serves the people who need this kind of support and that we're doing it in a way that can be accessible to everyone who needs it. So we're kind of at the forefront of that right now. And I'm really excited to be a part of that. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, a lot of what you do though is uh, adoption specific, right? I mean, cause you're an adoption informed counselor. Uh, is that right? I mean, Correct. Obviously, obviously you're adoption yeah. informed, you know, yeah. you, you know, have lived, have lived the experience, right? Right. Yeah. So what that means is a lot of the work that I do is aimed at serving folks who are navigating the adoption experience. And so that could be children who are adopted, could be their parents, could be adult adoptees, could be extended family relatives. It could mean, you know, speaking at conferences and just sharing about either my personal story or clinical insights from kind of a counseling perspective. And, you know, I acknowledge that um, you know, adoption in general, it doesn't need to be someone's primary identity. You know, we don't have to fully center our lives around it, although it does impact us for the rest of our life. Right. I do want to take a holistic approach and acknowledge that there are so many layers that go into a person's day-to-day -day experience. And I hold that as well. Yeah. Well, no, that's, uh, yeah. And that's so cool. I mean, even talking about like family members and grandparents and like, you know, extended family, because it does affect like an entire family unit. And I think a lot of that gets lost in this whole world because, you know, I'm sure when you're growing up, it, you know, it was almost like just not talked about, right. It was like easier not to talk about some of that stuff and just, mm. to, you know, it's easier if it, you know, stays in the sidelines. Right. Yeah. We don't get, you know, training or, um, you know, like any kind of guidance on how to talk about these types of topics in general. Like, you know, there's no, you know, how to talk about adoption in first grade. Um, right. And, you, you know, to, to give uh, some um, uh, patience, I guess, to like my personal family and extended family, you know, they grew up in a different time and space and just those generational differences about what is appropriate to talk about in our family. What is taboo? What's off limits. Um, what does that look like? What did that look like in the 40s when my dad was born? Um, what, what, how did that shift over time? Right. And how does that impact the way that our children view themselves and the, the world around them? So I think that conversation is definitely something that when, when extended families really dig into it, they'll, they'll find there are some unwritten rules in our family that serve as barriers um, to our connection. And you know, what can we do about that? Right. What, what have you seen in your practice to be sort of the most uh, significant way to sort of break down those barriers? Because if they, if they stay unspoken for long enough, it just feels like it's part of the culture. Like, how do you 
go about that? I like to invite anyone in the family constellation into the therapy space. So, and I think, you know, just in general, the idea of therapy feels strange and new and novel for um, folks from my parents' generation, almost as if, you know, you need to be really insane or crazy, quote unquote, right? To need therapy. And so I think if they can even get past that first barrier that's huge. That's a huge strength to be able to come in and say, wow, I'm willing to kind of listen. I'm willing to try something a little uncomfortable and new because I love you, because I want our family to, to move forward in this. And so I, I try to create that space in different ways in the in the therapy setting. Um, and that could practically, it could look like um, we come in and we just kind of, I listen to the family story. And then as they're talking, you know, I'm going to track what's going on in the room right now? I noticed grandma's a little tearful. Grandma, what's going on for you right now? And that takes relationship. We got to build rapport. That might take two sessions, three sessions to do. Once we have that joining, that alliance where they know that, yo, I'm cheering for you guys. I'm not here to like point fingers or anything. Then we start to open up and barriers begin to dissolve and then real work happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Um, so what is it about, um, in your experience, sort of the ado- adoption experience that, that uh, makes all these sort of questions more complicated? Uh, I figured this is probably where we kind of delve into maybe a little bit of, of your story, uh, so to speak. So, mm-hmm. I think the complexities with adoption, it can be sometimes really hard to pin down black and white. I want to acknowledge the different forms of loss that adoptees have to process and resolve and also being in a majority type culture as a minority and i'm using those terms loosely and ambiguously because that can mean different things for different people that's another layer to kind of figure out what do i do with that and how does that impact the way that um, i experience school settings or professional settings or a community space and how is that different from um, kind of like the normative quote unquote family experience? And I think that that is, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. And we're holding all those layers embodied as we move about the world. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I feel like we're get, like finally getting to this space where like the um, a, a people who are adult adoptees are finally sort of like having a voice into this community, at least in my like, you know, limited sort of field of view, you know, for a long time, it was sort of like, uh, those voices were sort of cast to the side and not listened to. I mean, did you experience, is this your experience as well? Yeah, personally, as I think about, you know, my story, I think I felt in my family, I felt comfortable talking about it. If I did have different emotions come up, to be frank, though, I don't think I had the language to talk about it until young adulthood. I hadn't met anyone that was able to share with me and help me articulate the different things I was feeling. Mm. So instead, it just kind of stayed inside and it might have manifested in I'm going to try to avoid certain things or I'm going to try to get that fulfillment through different avenues, different kinds of relationships, different behaviors, so to speak. And I think, you know, that's where part of my heart is that how can I extend this sort of language and space and processing for the younger generation so that they can share what they're thinking and feeling? Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's such an important part of this whole, whole equation. Let's jump into a little bit of your story. Um, yeah. Do you mind just sort of sharing how uh, adoption and how all that sort of went down for you? Yeah. Um, so I mentioned earlier, you know, place for adoption from Korea when I was three and a half. And I think growing up in that town, I was raised in a town, it was like um, just below 3000 people. And I went through uh, just many seasons of trying to belong and trying to fit in. And then went through seasons where I wanted um, to not be Korean. I wanted right. to just be white. And, you know, I tried it with clothes, with my hairstyle, even with, you know, the music I listened to, the people I hung out with and the things that we did, you know, I really gravitated towards whatever other people are doing right now. Let, let me do that because at least through doing I can feel a layer of belonging, right. but that, that shifted later on in life. And, you know, I think the, the, the difference was, you know, how do I um, find peace and comfort and connection in, in an identity that is separate from adoption or being mm -hmm. Korean and not to discount those two things. Right. But yeah, I guess what I'm talking about is my, my personal like faith journey because that played a role in terms of like the meaning or the purposes of everything that I'm going through. And I think as I learned a theology of suffering, I guess, or mm -hmm. just, a, just, you know, how to put things into perspective, that passage from uh, like Genesis, there's, there's this book in the Bible where there's this guy who gets thrown into a hole, his name's Joseph. And then at the very end, there's this idea that what was meant for evil or pain it can now be used for good. And in fact, it was always meant to be used for good so that many would be kept alive. And I took that and that kind of became just a, a, a life perspective for me. And that was the pivot point when I could hold that and then see my adoption, the, the racial ethnic identities through that lens, that was the game changer for me. And, and now what do I do next? And that was kind of the, the beginning of my, that testimony. I love that. I love that. Can we delve back? Can we delve a little bit into that story? Like where did, how did you yeah, come to that? And that's, yeah, cool. Yeah. And I think it's a kind of an, it was an ongoing process and it still is. And I, I can't particularly say that there was this sort of like one event when I, you know, went from um, dead to alive, from lonely to loved or whatever. I, I can say though, that when, I was in my mid twenties. I did start feeling kind of like a deeper sense of, of loneliness and emptiness and all of these ambitions that I was chasing. Um, not saying that they were like um, inherently wrong or anything, but I was just saying that I came to a point when I need to figure out what, what is life all about? Hmm. And is there a deeper meaning? I spent some time in the church growing up um, when I was, you know, like, uh, elementary, middle school, high school age, my parents gave, gave me a choice um, to not go to church. And I just stopped going to church because it just really wasn't my faith. And I think when I hit that spot of just loneliness and, and just starting to be more curious, all of a sudden there were these like people that kind of like came into my life that were introduced into my life. Um, there was a supervisor at a um, retail store that I worked at who happened to be Korean adoptee. And he started talking to me about adoption. And up until that point, I really didn't talk about it too much. Yeah. He was very bold about it and just kind of like even challenged me to think like, have you 
giving thought to this part of your story, Karen. Like, what's up? He was searching for his birth mom at the time. And that thought really didn't cross my mind to search for my birth mom. And, and so like maybe a few months later, another, a per, another person came into that store and offered to teach me Korean language for free. What? And she was like, wow, you're a Korean adopted. You should know Korean. Why don't we meet next door at this Barnes and Noble and I'll teach you Korean. So she's just really passionate about like, wow, this kid doesn't know Korean yet. He's Korean. And that just felt really random. And then uh, a local pastor came in, gave me his business card and Korean American pastor. And I didn't give much thought to it, but a couple months later, I decided to visit the church and predominantly Asian American church. And that opened up another kind of season of um, revelation for me, I guess. So just though, that's just like a slice of it, but there are so many that I believe like um, ordained moments and relationships and people that were brought into my life that were used to, for me to explore this part of my story. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. That is uh that's awesome. Uh, so do you, uh, know Korean pretty well now? I mean, was that like beneficial? That was um, beneficial because it helped me feel comfortable with that part of who I am and sort of like the God granted identity to me. Yeah. And I, I learned for a little while and then I ended up taking three semesters uh, during undergrad. Um, you know, it, in language, just in general, language acquisition, it just requires immersion for me right. personally and kind of like daily practice. Yeah. And so I, you know, just growing up in Wisconsin and in Minneapolis now, there's not many spaces for me to just practice that each day. But for me back then, it meant that, wow, there's this piece of me that's sort of like been unlocked and now I can explore that. And then when I went to Korea um, to meet my birth mom in, in 2012, I was able to use some of that language and that meant so much to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I got to hear, I mean, if you're willing to and comfortable sharing the story of meeting your birth mom, I'd love to hear how all that went down for you. Yeah. So just circling back to that store where my supervisor um, was talking about his adoption story, there happened to be a social worker that came in as well and gave me their business card that connected me with an organization that helps adoptees find their birth parents. So I was like, wow, this is just so random, but I kind of put a seat out there and um, kind of set that path open and went to my parents' house, asked for my adoption information. They gave me whatever they had and that kind of just started the, the ball rolling. And it took uh, a few years to actually kind of like track people down and information. Once they found my uncle, he was able to share some, disclose some information about uh, where my mom is at and kind of help arrange a meeting. So that, yeah, that meeting was arranged in 2012. And I went during that winter. Um, just a lot of things happened during that trip. And I think, again, that, that, that would be another pivot point where I had um, kind of to make a decision about how I wanted to interpret all of these events. When I got there, my mom canceled the meeting and it was just so tough for me. And I think those next couple of days were kind of really personal check-in times about mm-hmm. what what this means for me and, and how, how I think I can move forward. Um, and again, that's where that purpose that this is, for me, this is not fully about my own story. This is about um, what God has been doing in my life. God as a compassionate, present redeemer who plans to 
um, keep many alive, who plans to do good things. And for me personally, in my faith, I had to really ask, um, is that true? And what does God say about this? Who is God? What has God done? So not to over-spiritualize everything, but I came to a place of peace and reconciliation with that. And then I decided that I am going to make choices to move forward to use this for the good of other people. How can I use this to bless other adoptees that I know, just to bless the, the community and, and be a, a form of help to other people in their path? Mm-hmm. So the next day, the adoption agency called and, and they said, yeah, your mom changed her mind. She's willing to meet you. And it's going to be happening at this time and, and place. Wow. And so my attitude was completely different because I think going into that meeting, I, I was really figured, I was counting on like, what's in it for me? And that's not wrong. I'm not saying that that's wrong, but that was just the, the bent of my heart that this is for me. This is to help me resolve and answer questions for me. Um, so now I have this additional layer of this could be for her too. How can I enter that space and that meeting and bless my mom, this woman who went through hardship? I have no, I can't even begin to imagine how hard it's been for her. The fact that she even canceled a couple of days ago just shows me that this is real tough. And how can I go into that space and love this woman? And I did. And, um, you know, there was just a a lot that happened during those conversations and and dinner time and catching up, spending a couple of days together. And I've been able to integrate that into my, my story. Golly. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Uh, there has to be, I mean, to make a trip over to, to Korea and like, yeah, have all this anticipation. Right. And like, I, yeah, gosh, that's gotta be heavy. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Big expectations going in a lot of anticipation. Like, what do I want? What am I hoping for? What's going to happen here? Um, you know, what does it mean for me? And then just kind of going through all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's such beauty to adoption, right? And I think the church is is good at holding this beauty, right? Like we we um, we share these stories, and it, it's beautiful that like uh, kids can find you know safe, happy, secure homes. Like that's incredible. But I think it's really easy for us too as the church to forget about the brokenness, like from the beginning, you know, and like make it only happy and only a blessing. And I think for and I may be putting words into your mouth, but for a lot of adult adoptees, forgetting about the brokenness uh, as part of the story, I think can be damaging, maybe, you know, Mm. difficult. Is that, is that Mm. true? I think there's a way to validate and and honor that brokenness in the adoption narrative. I think scripture supports just Mm. the idea of giving a name to our suffering and you can just the psalms are soaked with it i mean just look at like psalm 88 um you know 42 43 just just like my tears have been my food for day and night like god where are you how long are you gonna be hidden like are you even for real kind of stuff and that that just shows me that god gives us permission he gives us a model to say dude life sucks yeah and for me personally I've found that there's also a movement. So there's a model for suffering, but there's a movement toward joy and hope mm. that it does mean something. It does lead to something for me. So I think it's it's really good to um, give space to that brokenness in the adoption narrative because it leads us to cry out in need to a savior. Now I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I work in a secular setting sometimes sure. as a counselor. Yeah. So I, I, I frame that in, in ways that can speak to anyone, right? That mm. is kind of a bridge or, you know, minister, ambassador. Generally, though, scripture-wise, I look at brokenness because it helps me acknowledge my need for God. Yeah. It increases my dependence on God. And in some ways, it helps me demonstrate Christ to a broken world. Yeah. Yeah. So how for uh, like adult adoptees or even kids, you know, uh, maybe, you know, kind of growing up through this, do you like manage or, or teach them to sort of hold both of those things sort of intention, like at the same time, I guess? Yeah, holding both. I love that idea. Um, we don't have to always wrap up the conversation with a pretty bow tie. Mm. What's it like to have my kid in the room with me? And just say, I miss Korea. Hmm. I wish I was in Korea right now. Or I wonder what my mom is doing right now. And sit with that and allow them to sit with that. That is normative and appropriate. And it could potentially be part of the healing process to sit with that. And that's a model for us, um, just parenting in general wise. Yeah. Um, but then also with the adoption piece to hold both and. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it's really, yeah, it, it's really easy to like uh, pretend like none of that existed, I guess, you know. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm even processing my own story, I guess, a little bit. Or my little my little mm. guy's story here. Mm. Um, yeah. Because it's. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard stuff, isn't it? And I think what really gives me encouragement and even challenge and conviction is that um, two things. The, the, the first thing is that part of that worry or anxiety about wrapping it up in a bow has to do with me as the caregiver to say, like, I'm uncomfortable sitting in this loss with you, little buddy. I, I want to get out of this feeling right now because it's uncomfortable to sit here. Right. So I am going to move this along. So that's the first thing. The second thing that's a challenge is that me as the caregiver now, I'm going to get to model for my little buddy here, my child. I get to model for my child how to sit in discomfort and process it and be faithful with it and move through it. Because we're never going to fully be on the other side of that loss, but we are going to model for them what it's like to live with it, live with. Because moving through it now kind of assumes that there's going to be a finish to this, that one day, well, I mean, it means that your loss in this life is going to end at some point, but moving through or living with it is a language that we can use to say that you might deal with this for the rest of your life and that's okay. And there's ways to hold this well, right? I'm sure Joseph, like from that story in, in scripture, um, might have always might always have the impact of being thrown into a hole multiple times or whatever, and just having people betray him. I mean, that's not something you just give up, right? But he right. learned to live with it well hmm. in a way that serves other people. So as dad, as mom, as caregivers, we can model that for our children. Wow. Yeah, because when you bring it into your story, like you make it a part of your story, you make it a part of what God's doing with you, and then it can be like like utilized, right? Mm. Huh. I've never Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's good. That's really good. I like that a lot. Um, so do you do much with like trauma uh, as far as like the adoption stuff goes? Trauma is a large part of 
the clinical profile. And I think it's important to make sure that whatever a counselor, a family is working with, that the counselor is informed about trauma, that they're familiar with how trauma impacts the, the body, mind, and what it's like to heal through that and process that together. Um, so yeah, that's a big piece of, okay. of the work okay. that we do. So my wife's a TBRI practitioner. Uh, so she does some of that in her practice. Um, I'd love to, I'd love for you to just like sort of give the flyover though of like, of what even trauma is, or, you know, I, I feel like, you know, in, in a lot of instances, maybe even in your story, you know, it feels like, oh, they're too young to maybe remember some of the, you know, what, what happened in Korea or whatever. And so once mm-hmm. we bring them to America, it's safe, everything's fine. Like, why would they experience trauma? Like, can you speak to that sort of mentality, I guess? Yeah. And TBRI, that's a, a trust-based kind of like relationship model. Yeah. And I think a big component of trauma is the word attachment. But just to boil this down, the helicopter view is that when a child experiences separation from their caregiver at whatever point in their life, it has an impact on the way that their body develops, has an impact on the way that their brain begins to handle emotions and regulate their body. Now, how does this relate to uh, scripture and how can like a biblical counselor account for trauma? You know, I'm still wrestling with that and kind of figuring that out. I acknowledge that there are characters in scripture that experience trauma. No doubt. Um, But I think, you know, as I do clinical work with families, one of our main endpoints is to restore the person's, the individual's ability to stay calm and regulated and rational thinking, even in the midst of stress even in the midst of perceived threat. And so that might mean that, you know, we're sitting at the table, drop some food on the floor, all of a sudden we have a quote unquote like meltdown, right? right. Um, that might be more than about the food that dropped on the floor. That might be a trauma response. Somehow it activated the body's threat response system, you know, the fight, flight, or freeze. So that's kind of like just a, a helicopter view of that. And there's different therapies and, and models of intervention that seek to um, you know, address that. But just the, the big thing is, is uh, moving forward, how can I um, make a relationship? How do we restore relationships in, um, in our life so that we do feel calm and secure, safe and trusted? And then how do we restore that in, in the body to feel safe in situations that are safe? Yeah. Yeah. So what is the root cause for a lot of these kids, maybe even some that are, you know, adopted, uh, you know, like pretty close to birth? Like, you know, I I feel like some of that maybe like doesn't make sense sometimes, you know, the trauma. Mm. So the question is, you know, for a a child, like a newborn, almost they were adopted at birth. How, How does trauma play a role in that? Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's different layers involved in that. So, I mean, just developmentally, we're just thinking about, you know, the, the nine months that that child spent in the womb kind of attaching to that caregiver, hearing their voice, um, just the, the physical presence. Right. And then sort of, I, I use this word hesitantly, but the normative process would be immediately after birth that newborn gets skin on skin contact with their caregiver and there's this experience there's this very intimate experience where 
both the parent and the child are contributing to this precious relationship that's happening. That the child is putting something in and the parent is putting something in and then both receive from that relationship. Now the child is attaching to the caregiver to say, when I do this, the caregiver does that. When I cry or whimper, caregiver meets my needs in a certain way. And so now this person who's right here with me is, is a viable source of security and comfort. It's reliable, it's consistent, it's happening over time. And they begin to have these prior experiences that this is going to happen. This safety is going to happen. Now, when that is disrupted, that has a huge impact on a little body. Mm, right. Lifelong impact, right? Um, and that's kind of just a, um, a nutshell of how it can you know, cause or correlate to later on experiences in their life. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, even in your example, that's assuming like uh, the, the pregnancy is healthy, the, the, the birth mother is taking care of herself, there's no exposure, right? I mean, that's, that's still assuming a lot. And you have that, you know, that, that, um, that brokenness, even in that relationship from the womb mm. to like the, the world, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that speaks to why it is so complicated yeah. and difficult and really difficult decisions for everyone involved. And even if when you think about the court system being involved and who's deciding on behalf of who, that's why we need to be having these kinds of conversations right. because they matter. Yeah. That matters. Yeah. Well, because I can't tell you how many uh, people who have maybe teenagers that have been adopted and are like, they're manifesting, like they have all these behaviors that I don't quite understand. But I, I was there when they were, uh, uh, you know, when they were born, like I was in the uh, room, you know, how could they possibly have, have these issues? And I think uh, it, it wasn't until like, just what you said, like, uh, that it all clicked for me that like, there's been a, there's been nine months of forming attachment for this child. This is all this child has known. And now for it to be broken and taken away, like, that's significant, right? That's like mm -hmm. their whole life. Their whole life has been turned yeah. upside down up to that point, you know? And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, to expect them just to get it together, I guess, or whatever, you know, like that not to affect them is, I think, uh, asking way, way too much. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that term. It's asking way too much, like what realistically, and it even just honors that process mm -hmm. of, you know, conception, pregnancy, right. In delivery um you know how to see that yeah for sure no it's it's a uh, it's good stuff um I, I i remember my question i had for you earlier how have you seen as you've uh gotten older maybe like uh major life stages uh, uh major transitions in your life have you seen the your adoption story sort of change uh and and manifest itself in, in different seasons in in your life yeah, it has taken on different colors. The more I learn and the more experience I gain, and even just the way that I've heard, like the more stories that I hear, different parts get highlighted. And for example, and I can kind of give it um, a little metaphor, is that every time I watch the movie Back to the Future, you know, something different kind of sticks out to me yeah, about... Sure 
Marty and Doc and the time machine, all this stuff, right? It's a great 80s so, reference in, there, man. <laughs> <laughs> and any story that is worth, you know, repeating or looking at, like a, whether it's a movie or a, or a book that we read, different features and different components stand out to us at different times of our life. Yeah. And so that's been my adoption story when I look back on it, when I read, you know, different articles or hear other people, you know, different things resonate with me. And then I think back on my own story and have different aha moments, different revelations. Yeah, that's interesting. That's good. Um, I'd love to have a, a uh, conversation just about culture and maybe uh, race. Um, it just strikes me like going from Korea to a small town in Wisconsin, like there could not have been a ton of support. And I know you've mentioned some mentors and stuff, but like as a child, how did you sort of process all that uh, information and like being different and some of that stuff? It was really scary and confusing for me as a child. Mm -hmm. And there were not mentors back then at that age for me. And, and I think just in, in terms of feeling isolated, I think that, you know, that, that was my experience back then and how to make sense of that. I avoided any kind of recognition that I was different. Mm -hmm. And even if I, you know, were to see um, like an Asian looking family, you know, I would want to walk the other way. I would want to look the other way. And I just felt so uncomfortable um, acknowledging that piece of who I am because it just meant that I am different and there's something up with me and my family. I can't put my finger on it, but I just don't want to face it right now. I'm not ready to face it. I don't know how to face it. And it somehow represented that this is like why I get treated differently. People ask me questions and I avoided it at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how, how then now, I mean, as, as a clinician, do you sort of talk to people about making that connection? Because I would assume like a child sort of maybe not worrying about that cultural stuff is like comforting to most parents. It's like, Oh, they're okay. They're sort of fitting in like, this is good. When it, uh, in the, in the underlying, you know, current, you're just freaking out. Like you, you don't mm -hmm. know, you don't even know what to do. So how do you like, talk to parents about how to handle some of that cultural shift. Yeah, that's a really deep question. Such an important question. I think, so let me see a couple of things come to my mind. Number one is I, I would want to ask, you know, how much responsibility am I placing on my child to bring up these topics? Mm. Um, because when I was in kindergarten, first, second, third grade, I first, didn't know how to talk about it so why would I bring it up number two my parents didn't talk about it too much so I, I'm not really even sure that there is a space to talk about it right so for parents you know you can just kind of do a reflection question right now is that am I waiting for my child to make the first move because that might be a little unrealistic it could be I don't know I mean it's definitely possible but more than likely caregiver is going to have to step into that role to create space and teach language uh, that's the first thing. Yeah. Um, number two is that I'm not in a space, I, I'm not in a place or authority to tell parents how to parent. I think parents are going to be expert on uh, what feels comfortable for them. Now, I'm not saying that adoptees are not the experts on adoptee stories. What I'm saying is that parents, you are the ones that have the furthest reach in, into your children's life right now. You're there 24-7. You can come meet with me 50 minutes a week. 
great. But when you guys step outside and clean the door, it's your show. It's yeah. your responsibility. Mm-hmm. And as you do that, you're going to need to kind of um, go with the ebb and flow and acknowledge that I'm going to try something right now. It might land. It might not. It might flop. It might stick. I don't know. And you might make just little comments here and there. You might ask questions. Um, it can happen in the way that you choose to locate your family, you know, the city that you live in, you know, that's like a, a global thing, just, you know, where are we living? It could happen in the kind of books you read, could happen in the kind of like um, physicians you choose, your dentist, the person of color, things like that. And again, not to um, completely prioritize like race, um, but I'm just saying like these types of things that these are decisions that caregivers can do that the child cannot, but the caregivers are doing this to set up their child for success when they are interested in asking those questions and and processing those pieces of their identity. Yeah. Well, because if your entire life, you're the only person who looks like you in your sort of context, I mean, how does that make you, how could that possibly make you feel like just like an outcast, right? And and different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're going to look at who is in positions of power. Right. Like I, I'm in the out group right now and I, I'm just looking at like who controls things, who gets celebrated, who are the strong ones, who are the successful ones. And then I kind of look at how they're treated and then I realize I'm, I'm not that. Mm. And so like people who do look like me, what positions do they take in this town, in this society? Um, people who do look like me, how are they treated? What are the advantages or disadvantages that they are navigating? And that sets up my worldview from a young age. And it takes a lot of work to dismantle that and and reimagine that people like you can be strong, brilliant, intelligent, successful, powerful leaders. And that's a huge dynamic, a huge shift in dynamic that it's a caregiver's, part of the caregiver's um, opportunity to invite them into that. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. I yeah, so much. Yes. Uh, so for you, like finding a you know, ethnically Korean church. I mean, was that like a huge step forward in your um, understanding the gospel? I guess, or uh, in how you took in the the, the Christianity. I love this question because um, I I'm going to say yes. It helped. Okay. It was a huge. It was a significant factor in that. Um, because I grew up in that smaller town and our church was predominantly white mm-hmm. and it was kind of like an older crowd. They're awesome people. I love them. They loved me. They prayed for me. They um, were so generous to me and my family. And I have no doubt they love God and they're on mission. They have purpose. No doubt about that. Yeah. But like I said, as a kindergartner, you know, elementary school kid, I don't care about that. That doesn't really even make sense to me. I don't understand it. Right. Um, so I think part of the, time away from the church for me was just saying that like that just wasn't my crowd like maybe I kind of believe it but it just doesn't feel like I belong even belong there so when I started plugging into this local church um you know the the Asian American local church then I started experiencing part of that what people call like racial mirrors but just in, in a simple way like people who look like me how do they love God? What are they saying about God? How, what does worship look like? And I think that just opened a door to having like a wider view that God 
is concerned with all cultures, all ethnicities. And I'm not saying that this is this needs to map onto everybody, but just what's it what's it like to be in a place of a community of people who are trying to figure out what is truth, what is love, be in that community with people who look like me, right? Um, and yeah, and that's just kind of like how that opened the door for me. Yeah, well, because yeah. And I mean, maybe we don't give kids enough credit, you know, like that they don't pay attention to that sort of stuff or don't notice that sort of stuff. And you're like, these kids notice every single stinking thing, right? They, mm. They're they always processing and always thinking. And, you know, um, I think sometimes the like leaving those conversations aside are a lot easier for us and mm. uh, not easier for any, not easier for them. Like in the, you're just delaying that sort of um, mm. So, sorry, go ahead, please. You reminded me that's so important that our kids are making conclusions. They're reasoning. They're so logical and they're figuring stuff out. They're watching what mom and dad are doing. They're watching what are my caregivers doing, these these people in authority, the grownups. They're watching what's important to the grownups here. And then what does that mean for me? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, but, uh, and, and back just a sec to the, to the church, did you, when you went into a, you know, a, a the Asian, predominantly Asian church, did you feel like you didn't belong there either because of sort of your background, uh, to any extent? Mm. Yeah, that brings up the third space idea where I've heard a lot of folks talk about, I felt too American to belong with um, kind of like this minority crowd, but I feel like too Korean or whatever to fully fit in with the American crowd. So, and if someone, um, so for me, I guess I I felt a sense of that um, definitely. And, And coming from American culture and then sort of figuring out what, what is Asian American culture? What, what is that? That was a learning curve that was kind of just an experience. But I think because it was also, there was that spiritual component, I think that sort of mm. interacts with, because um, it's almost the idea that the people in that local church are aware that there are like these cultural, like ethnic components of Asian American um, perspectives that are unhealthy, that are maladaptive. And how, what does repentance look like? I don't want to use too much, you know, lingo here, but like, what does it look like to, to acknowledge that these are things that prevent us from connecting with each other, that these are things in our culture that prevent us from serving and, and loving the way that we've been called love. So how do we, how do we deal with that? If there's an Asian American community that does not have that questioning, that sort of like self-counseling thing, then we're just going to fall into, you know, that does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it totally does because it can. Yeah, yeah. If they don't, if there's not awareness on 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 the you know on the other side, right? Then it can just end up being the same thing, just like uh, on the. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not articulating well, but I do get what you're saying. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good stuff. Well, Cam, is there something that you feel like I haven't touched on that you would like to make sure and talk about? Because I want to make sure we get all the clean all the wisdom, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, just a a message from me, I think just like my heart is that what can we do to connect adoptees and adoptive families, adoptive communities together 
right now so that many people could be kept alive kind of idea. Yeah. Um, and, and that applies to whatever background you're, you're from or whatever belief system, just the idea that we're not alone and it helps so much to be walking your path with mm-hmm. someone who understands. And what can we be doing now as the adoptee community, the adoption community, to be building that for um, the current and the next generation? Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great stuff. Can you talk just a little bit just about your platform and like what you're building and like the resources and and that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, so Instagram was something that I launched. Um, I think like last year in September as a space to kind of start sharing my story and do a little blogging. Um, And it sort of evolved into answering more questions from the adopted community. And I think what I really appreciated about that is that, you know, how can we use social media to hear from each other and listen to each other and, and share resources with each other. And kind of where I'm at now is in the digital space, how can we usher in, you know, the next generation of mental health providers in, in the digital space? So just, yeah, online, I want to be able to connect folks like me when I was younger, you know, growing up in the 80s. Well, I guess we really didn't even have internet back then, but just <laughs> grow, growing up in a small rural town where there was not a therapist of color for me, there was not someone who understood adoption. How could a person like me in, you know, central whatever state right now in the middle of a cornfield yeah. How can they access help in 2020, in right. 2025, you know, 10, 20 years from now? What will that look like? And I think I'm so open to partnering and just working with other folks in the community right now to, to bridge that gap and to make yeah. sure that we can be there to support those folks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's good. That's great. Uh, I appreciate that. I've loved uh, checking out all the stuff you've got and all the all the resources. So yeah, I'll encourage people to go there. I'll put it in the show notes so they can find all of your stuff. And uh, yeah, it's m- much appreciated. Um, yeah. So you feel like uh, jumping into the final two questions? Does that work? Yeah. Um, I guess one last thing. Yeah. I am launching a 12-week online caregiver workshop, and we're currently accepting applications for that. The workshop that we're running right now has been awesome. We've got families from um, different places of the U.S. and even overseas, and like, how awesome is it that we can all connect together in the space and, um, you know, feel supported? And I think this, yeah, workshop really gives space to talk about everything that we shared today and then diving deeper into other issues that are so relevant to families that are shaped by adoption. So um, if anyone, you know, feels like that would be supportive to them, you can go online and and apply and check it out. I love it. So what's the best way to do that? Is that through the website or Instagram or all of the above? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So places that you can find me are on that website. Um, Just go to therapyredeemed.com slash WordPress. Um, And then you can click the application link or the workshop link to find more info. Otherwise, yeah, on Instagram, I usually post little um, kind of like daily messages that are related to adoption. They can find me there and then click to the link from my page. I love that. It's great stuff, man. I appreciate that very much. So it's good. I've, I've loved checking out your Instagram and um, yeah, just some like great words on there. And I think uh, yeah, you're doing something that's like very needed in our like adoption and foster community and we need voices like yours. And yeah, so thank, thank you for your work. I appreciate that. And thank you, Curry, because I think you are providing a model for listening, you know, just to even chat in a 
low stakes, super chill environment. We're just yeah. like two dudes kind of figuring things out together. Totally. And I, I'm not claiming to have the absolute authority about anything, but just the fact that we can enter into a dialogue and talk with each other. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Like that is so cool. So I just want to give you huge credit for that. Hey, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, it's a definitely a joy and like getting to connect, like we would never meet each other, you know, weren't it, we're not for Instagram and uh, zoom. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Cool. Pretty cool. Amen. So, Amen. Yeah, it's good. All right. Well, so uh, we'll jump into the final two questions now, if that's if that's cool with you. Yeah. Um, so my first question is, what is the strangest job that you have ever had? When I was in um, my like young adult years, I think I. I call it strange because it led me to a lot of different experience, experiences, but being a, like an independent musician and like traveling around to different places in, in the region yeah, um, with this group of guys that, you know, I love and just did a lot of different things together. Um, so many different stories and unexpected things, but then just what's it like to, we created music, we wrote music and then performed it live in front of, you know, strangers who, you know, end up being friends and meeting people from different states and things like that, that yeah. was incredible for me. And I'm really thankful that I was able to experience just, you know, what it's like to have that as part of my story. Um, so yeah, fun job and just sitting back at the merch table and people come by and kind of share how a song resonated with them. Yeah, That's awesome. So I got to pause there though. Like what, like what's the backstory there? What did you play? Like what? Yeah. Yeah, so um, when I was 15, 16 years old, yeah. music became a really big outlet for me, like angry, fast, heavy music, where I can like jump up and down and shake my fist and bang my head and play super loud. And that kind of just evolved and like just in the musician community, meeting different people and say, hey, you guys want to like make some songs together and then we'll play it somewhere. Um, and so that's how it evolved. And then I kind of, yeah, growing up in Wisconsin, just meeting different people and doing that in different spaces. Um, yeah, sort of background on that. That's cool. So it was like, a, I mean, it was like, a, I don't know, what, what genre was it then? I think it would be kind of like a mix between blues, jazz, and metal. Um, just kind of rock music, I guess you'd okay. say, Sweet. but yeah, we chipped in, we bought a van and trailer, had all of our music equipment and we would book shows and travel back and forth. And it's, yeah, just a, a, a super, um, interesting, colorful time. In my life. That's awesome. That sounds amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Well, good. Uh, okay. So then my final question is what is one piece of advice you would give to somebody looking to bring God's kingdom more into their work? Yeah, I really like this question. I was thinking about it. I think this term from David Paulison resonates with me. It's called, it goes like this. It just says, think global, act local. That's very open-ended, but I think it's powerful and flexible enough to apply to anyone listening right now, wherever you are in the context of your unique and specific calling you know, you can have your vision, your idea for what a better world means to you. That's awesome. You need that. And then you apply that to your meeting today at one o'clock, or you apply that to when you get home and meet with your spouse or your child, or you apply that when you get coffee with a friend. Um, maybe that means I want to be a little bit more patient, or maybe that means I want to, I want to hear someone a little bit more. I want to ask more open-ended questions, whatever it is, just think 
global, act local. I want to, I, I believe in a world where, um, you know, diversity is celebrated and everyone is included. That's an awesome global idea. Locally, what does that mean for you when you're talking with your supervisor? What does advocacy look like? Does it mean you interrupt an inappropriate joke? Does it mean that you kind of talk back in a respectful, um, firm way to an extended family member who says something like a racial slur? I don't know what that means for you, but just the idea of wherever you are in your journey, you can think global, but then act local. Just the merging of principle and practice. You, You believe in something, but then you apply that practically to a specific situation. I love that. I think that's great. Uh, I appreciate that, Cam. Dude, thanks for the time. It's been uh, great connecting. And uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing each other lots on Instagram and, and all that stuff. So, Right on. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, Curry. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing from Cam uh, on this episode. I really do think what he's got going on is really important. It's really good stuff. Uh, so check him out on Instagram. All that stuff's in the show notes. Uh, but what he's what he's doing with Therapy Redeemed, I think, is really important. Uh, it's cutting edge for for the adoption community, and and frankly, it's it's long overdue for the for the adoption community. So I just encourage you to check him out, follow him, make sure you know what's going on, and uh, yeah, tell your friends. Uh, a share is always very helpful. So. Uh, do all that for me and until next time get out there and hustle